Well, I'm not a props type of preacher. I rarely use props in my preaching. I recall serving my last pastorate, uh, a local pastor in the community always used props. I remember him telling me the story of how he brought up clay pots and smashed them as part of his message to illustrate a point. That's not really my MO, and that's probably for the best for all of us. Because this morning I'm attempting to use a prop. I'm not going to be breaking anything, at least on purpose. And what I have as a prop may be a little disappointing at first, but just bear with me. Let's work through this message together. Perhaps you'll see its significance or its insignificance by the end of the message. This morning I bring to you a mustard seed. That's right. You may not see it. In fact, you probably don't. It's between my two fingers, and it's extremely tiny. It weighs, to be precise, 0.00004 pounds. And I'd say it's an eighth of an inch, maybe a sixteenth of an inch tall. Now, that's the mustard seed, and we'll get to that in Matthew 17 in a moment. By contrast, if I had brought along with me the world's largest seed, it would be the seed of the palm tree. It's called the, the coco de mer. This seed is like 12 inches big, and they can grow up to be 40 pounds. So I could place my mustard seed here, and then my palm tree seed there. Now, surprisingly enough, I couldn't find one of those seeds in Whatcom County. So what, I've, what I did do this week, though, is I brought something much more significant. What I found in Matthew 17 is much more significant than all of these seeds. We're going to see in Matthew 17 this morning a boy rescued from torture. In Matthew 17 this morning, we're going to see a side of Jesus we're probably not too familiar with. And in Matthew 17 this morning, most importantly, our Lord's going to teach us about faith. Faith the size of a mustard seed. And when it comes to faith, it's about the quality of faith and not the quantity. That's going to be his point as he teaches. Now, this is a good message for you and I. Because there are times in our Christian life where we struggle with faith. Now, it's not as though we we disbelieve the gospel, as though we're turning and changing our minds about who Jesus is. We're not saying that he's no longer God or that he's not our Savior or our Lord. That's not what I'm referring to. Instead, it's the capacity for our Lord to do what he says he can do, to believe that he is able. Maybe it's a rebellious child. Perhaps a child has been raised in a Christian home and he's now wayward. Do we believe that Jesus can rescue him? It could be sickness or, or disease. We, we call Jesus healer, the great physician, but do we believe that he can heal? Maybe it's salvation. It could be the conversion of, of someone we love. I mean, we've seen the gospel change us. Do we really believe it can change someone else? The hard case. The guy who seems impossible to reach. That's the kind of belief or the kind of faith I'm referring to. To all of these questions and to even more, in Matthew chapter 17 this morning, Jesus says to you, believe. 
believe. We're going to explore this passage in two parts. We'll begin in verse 14. We're going to see first the dilemma. Jesus often finds himself in these accounts. He's encountering these kinds of dilemmas all the time. And in verses 19 through 23, we'll then see the debrief or or the follow-up. Jesus is so good at, at taking the events that happen and then teaching his disciples as a result. Well, in the first few verses, verses 14 through 18, we have the dilemma. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. This is Matthew's gospel. He records the event. Mark and Luke also record this event, so I want to harmonize all three. I want to bring all three together this morning to see what happened on that chaotic day. Now, if you can recall last time, Jesus underwent a transfiguration. You can see that in the first few verses of Matthew 17. Verse 14 then takes place on the next day. As they come off the mountain, it's Jesus, Peter, James, and John. The four of them see the other nine disciples. There's a large crowd surrounding them, and in the crowd are scribes. The scribes are arguing with the nine disciples. The crowd sees Jesus, and they run up to greet him. Again, looking at all of our gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this account involves eight different groups or eight different people. Of course, there's Jesus. There's there's Peter, James, and John. Remember, they were with Jesus atop the mountain, and they're coming down with him now. And then there's what I'm calling the nine. It's the other nine disciples. What happens in our account gives us a clue as to what they've been up to while the rest were up the mountain. There's the scribes. These were teachers of the Old Testament law. They would have known the the law well. Mark writes that they're arguing with the nine disciples. There's a large crowd, yet another group. We should understand them as local townspeople. There's a father. We heard from him already. He's a loving dad, a desperate dad. There's the boy, a child oppressed by a demonic spirit. And lastly, there's the evil spirit himself manifesting himself through illness. These people and these groups all intersect to create quite a confusing scene. And in verse 15 of Matthew 17, breaking forth from this chaos comes the father. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and very ill. The boy is a lunatic. Now, the word lunatic comes from a Latin word meaning moonstruck. 
Some believe the episodes he had, episodes like this, were aggravated by changes in the moon phases. The Greek word behind it speaks to epilepsy, epileptic seizures. While epilepsy remains in our day-to-day, the Mayo Clinic describes it, brain activity becomes abnormal, causes seizures or periods of unusual behavior, sensations, sometimes loss of awareness. By the time we get to verse 18, we learn that the demonic is involved in this. It's demon possession. Now, note, this doesn't mean that everyone who has epilepsy is demon-possessed. But it does remind us of Satan's influence in at least some kinds of illnesses. Again, let's consider the descriptions of this boy as they're given by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In our account today, Matthew describes him as falling into the fire, falling into the water. From time to time, you and I may, may burn our hand or we may receive a burn by accident. Statistically, rarely are we going to encounter a drowning episode, but for this boy, it is constant. He needs round-the-clock supervision. He needs a parent by his side at all times. Mark says it this way, the demon makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. At least most of these, if not all of them, do come along with epilepsy. But notice what Mark did there. Mark records the father attributing this to the demon. Luke goes on to write, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. To be the father of this boy is to occupy a front row seat to the hell of his life. It's to wake up each day, if he even slept, and wonder what new way will they try to kill my son today. This dad is heart sick, he's anxious, and he's helpless. He tried the disciples, he tried to enlist their help. They could not help, so he comes to Jesus, and he comes to an uncomfortable reply. Jesus says, you unbelieving and preferred it generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Who is this Jesus? How long shall I be with you? This doesn't sound like a a loving Jesus. Sounds like anger, a frustration, irritation. Now, Jesus reacts this way for a reason, and if you're like me, you'd like to know why that reason is, so that I myself don't do that. Well, we're going to get to that a little bit later in verses 19 to 20. He calls them unbelieving and perverted. Uh, unbelief has to do with disbelief. We want to see that perversion has more to do with a twisting or a distortion of something. That the two of these descriptions appear together, this is also significant. Because one word informs the other word. 
In his commentary on Matthew, D.A. Carson writes, connecting perverse and unbelieving implies that the failure to believe stems from a moral failure to recognize the truth. Not from want or lack of evidence, but from a willful neglect or distortion of that evidence. And this remark seems to be directed toward the disciples. After all, these disciples had what they needed. Back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. The disciples exercised that authority. They have success. They go. Mark chapter 6, they're casting out many demons. So what gives? Well, what's happened? Well, Jesus is going to reply The disciples will actually want to know. They're going to ask in a bit of a different way. But before we get there, following the text, look at the forgiveness of Jesus. Or excuse me, look at the compassion of Jesus. We see his mercy because he responds to the Father's request. The Gospels indicate that Jesus rebuked the demon. There are more convulsions When the boy approaches Jesus, he goes into convulsions. When Jesus rebukes him, the boy goes into convulsions. This reminds me of those yards you pass by as you're walking down the street, and there's a crazy dog behind the fence. Every time you walk by, he comes up to the fence and barks at you, and then he goes away. And you come back again, he comes up to the fence and barks at you, and then you go away. That's how it seems to be when Jesus enters these spiritual realms. Nearby, the demonic, they they go crazy. And when Jesus spoke, this boy became like a corpse. The gospel said there was a stiffening, some kind of rigor mortis that happened to him. The people watching thought he died. And Jesus took his hand and he he raised him up. Matthew says the boy was cured at once. Well, so far in our text this morning, Jesus has come down the mountain. And almost without interruption, he's entered this hornet's nest. There's argument, there's unbelief, there's demonic possession. But in extraordinary fashion, Jesus shows mercy, and he's not done. You see, the act of mercy isn't just healing that boy. It's also correcting bad belief, which is what he does next with the disciples. You see, mercy isn't just fixing the pain, it's also correcting error. And his disciples ask him a question that produces correction. In verses 19 through 21, we have what I'm calling the the debrief or the follow-up session. They get together, they huddle up, and Jesus now teaches. Verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed... And you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, it will move. And nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So this is a lesson in faith. Mustard seed-sized faith. 
And we get the location. Verse 19 indicates that they asked Jesus privately. I can imagine that the preference there. There's something about that public rebuke that had to be a little embarrassing. Mark indicates that they were inside of a house when they asked. And the disciples want to know why they couldn't do what Jesus did. Why couldn't we exercise the demon? Remember, they would have had memories of doing this already. They've done this before. This is old hat, or should have been. Jesus says, because of your little faith. Now, at first pass, it sounds like the disciples did not have enough faith. They didn't have the quantity as though faith is a dump truck and theirs was half full. Maybe if we'd filled our dump truck before we entered, well, we would have been okay. But again, this is not about some quantity of faith. How do we know that? Because of his illustration. You see, when Jesus surveyed the plant kingdom, all the creation that his father had made, he does not choose the cedar of Lebanon He doesn't even consider the natural kingdom and select the Leviathan of the deep. When he thinks to illustrate, he points to the mustard seed. This little guy right here, it's still there, I think. He says, in essence, huge things happen with little faith. But a question still exists here. What exactly was the issue? Again, we want to go back and pull verse 17 into the discussion of verse 20 because it all goes together. It relates. Remember, their faith was perverted or their faith was twisted. And again, we don't know all the details. We don't know exactly or specifically how they erred. Maybe it was in their words. Maybe in the exorcism they were relying upon their words. If we say just the right words... If we speak just the right formula, maybe it was in their abilities. Verse 21 speaks of prayer. It sounds as though that they weren't praying, as though they weren't calling upon God for help. Maybe over time, they got good at this. The early fear of exercising demons, that desperate prayer when they cried out to God, they're a little confident now. We don't exactly know why. But reading verse 20 carefully, we do see the point Jesus makes. And it's an encouragement, by the way. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. The smallest faith can be extraordinary. You don't need faith the size of the cocoa de myrrh, that palm tree seed, You don't need faith in yourself. Positive thinking isn't bad. It just isn't the solution. You definitely don't need the theology of the so-called faith healers. They abuse this passage. When their supposed healings don't work, what do they tell people? You didn't have enough faith. That's garbage. If you're seeing that on some program you're watching or sermon you're listening, turn the channel. Because Jesus says, if you have the tiniest bit of genuine faith, if you have quality faith, if you have mustard seed-sized faith, great things can happen. Mustard seeds contain life. In this little seed is everything needed for life. 
One gardening, gardening article speaks of their, quote, incredible power. According to research, a small seed only one millimeter in radius generates a bioenergy field of a hundred millimeter radius. I know, I don't know what that means either, but it sounds really powerful. And in a similar way, believer, you are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 said that it is this Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Mustard seeds grow. Back in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus compared his kingdom to a mustard seed. He said it's going to become larger than other plants. It's going to grow up to be a bush or a tree. So too should it be with our faith. If we do something with the indwelling spirit, if we do something with God's word, if we do something with prayer, we're going to grow. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us everything needed for life and godliness. We have all the pieces. They're all there. We need to take them and we need to do something with them. And this little seed packs quite a surprise. Who would expect that this seed does anything but get lost? The tiny seed surprises. It's so small, but it produces this beautiful bush. I hope that's your experience in Christ today. That you place your faith in the right person, in Jesus himself. And that you water it, and that you nurture it, and that you let trials perform their work. And then you can look back. Maybe it's not so evident in the present. Maybe you don't see it over the course of a week or a month. But you can look back across your life and see the progress that God is making in your life. It's slow. Maybe it's mustard seed size. But God does it. So it is with a mustard seed size faith. And Jesus says to those disciples... He says, if you have this faith and you say to this mountain, move from here to there, it will move. Now, just for the record, Jesus at no point in his ministry did he move a mountain. We can even leaf through the pages, 2,000 years of church history, and we can find no record of a Christian moving a mountain. So does that mean that we are still waiting to find just one person with a mustard seed-sized faith? No. Because Jesus here is speaking with hyperbole. We say that Jesus is exaggerating. He's doing this to prove a point. In fact, he's using the Bible to prove his point. Mountain moving throughout the Bible is used to communicate different types of truths. Going back to Isaiah chapter 54, the prophet writes, The mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. God is saying to Israel, even if the mountains move, my love for you will not, will not move. Paul picks up on this image. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Now, Paul writes of someone who could be so gifted it's as though they could alter the landscape. Again, he's, he's speaking to advance a teaching. He's using a word picture. 
Well, Jesus wants us to see how powerful faith can be in the life of the Christian. Again, the focus here is upon a faith of of quality, not quantity. Well, let me give you three applications to bring it together. And I want to start with verses 22 and 23. These verses connect to what we explored today. And in these verses, Jesus will continue speaking. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus speaks of himself. He he advances a revelation. Here is what is to come. He speaks of his death, and he speaks of his resurrection. That is to say that Jesus died for your sins, and he rose again from the dead. And the Bible says that all who repent or turn from their sin, all who believe that Jesus did these things, they will be forgiven of their sin. You and I must begin here. Don't worry about anything else you heard in today's message. We need to start here, if you have not already. Everything I said so far doesn't even apply to you until you come to the realization that you're forgiven by Jesus, by faith. Don't even worry about communion. We want to get right with God before we do any of these other things. That comes through the gospel, that comes through Jesus. Secondly, the final two verses remind us that the clock is ticking. These disciples, they needed a potent faith yesterday. They only have so much time with Jesus. Every day is one day closer to the cross. For them, the day is coming when they need to learn how to swim. Well, for you and I, this mustard seed-sized faith, this quality faith, this is not something for the bucket list. This is not something that we want to get to one day. There ought to be some urgency about that. We need the kind of faith that Jesus demands, and we need it today. We need to be investing it today. We need to be watering and nurturing today. Maybe you won't cast out a demon tomorrow. Maybe you won't be moving Mount Baker this afternoon. But Jesus calls us to have faith the small faith, the kind of faith that that lives and the kind of faith that grows and the kind of faith that surprises. This is the faith that you and I need today. And finally, this quality faith, this quality faith is built upon the basics. You know, some people live their Christian life in pursuit of the, the next best thing, some kind of shortcut or invention Uh, some kind of trick or some kind of of tip. How can I grow my faith? Some churches, this is their whole reason for existence. But you know, faith is not an app to download. We need to approach it with the basics, the word of God and prayer. And together, these basics, they produce a quality faith. And I say this because I've, I've seen, I see evidence of this in our passage today. Again, in our passage, we saw the disciples twist truth. They knew something. They had something of the word of God, but they got it wrong. Jesus called their disbelief a perversion. In some ways, the words of Jesus got a little sideways in their ministry. That's the word of God. Well, prayer was also an issue. 
It seems as they were misfiring in their prayer lives that somehow they lost a connection. But quality faith comes from the Word of God, and it comes from prayer. And huge things come from just a little faith, a mustard seed-sized faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your bold teaching. Thank you for your, your honesty and for your clarity. And thank you for your, your mercy and your love. We think about this uh, father who experienced that. as you, He watched you heal his son right before his eyes. Oh, father, I pray that we too would experience that, that we would know your mercy that we would experience your love and that you would give us a grace to have a mustard seed-sized faith. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us in areas where we struggle and if we disbelieve, you would help our unbelief. We pray these things in your name.